Our text this morning is found in the Gospel of John, chapter 18, and I invite you to turn there with me as I read. John 18, verse 33 and following. Pilate entered the praetorium again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingship is not of this world. If my kingship were of this world, my servants would fight, that I might not be handed over to the Jews. But my kingship is not from this world. Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this I was born, and for this I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went out to the Jews again and told them, I find no crime in him. Every year, Christmas poses the world with a question, and you with a question. Namely, why did Jesus Christ come? Or, what difference should this man make for your life, for your marriage, or your job, or your leisure, or your thinking, or your emotions? What is the meaning of the coming and the birth of this historical figure, Jesus Christ? One of the verses that David just read, verse 37 at the end of Jesus' life, gives an answer to the meaning of the beginning of his life. It says, For this I was born. So you see it's a Christmas text after all. Explaining his birth. For this I was born, and for this I came into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. So the answer of that verse to the question, why was Jesus born, is this. Jesus was born in order to testify to the truth. Now, what I would like to do is simply take that sentence from our Lord Jesus at the end of his life and look at two implications that it has for the meaning of Christmas and one exhortation. Let me just state what they are and then unfold them for you. The first implication is this. There is truth. There is truth to which every human being should bow. There is truth that doesn't change. It comes into the world from outside. 
The second implication is this. Jesus Christ came and was born to reveal that truth and to testify to it. And the concluding exhortation of the morning will be this. Don't be like Pilate when you hear Jesus. Let's take these one at a time now. Implication number one. There is truth. The truth. Notice what it says. For this I was born and for this I came into the world to bear witness to the truth. It comes from outside. The world doesn't think it up. The world doesn't shape it, mold it, or make it. It's not a truth for you and a different truth for me. It is the truth. It comes from outside. It impinges upon us. It's brought to us. And every human, no matter what culture, color, creed, ought to submit to it and believe it. It applies to everyone. It comes from God and is testified to by the Son of God. Now, for some of you, I thank God that's as obvious as the nose on my face. But for America, it's reprehensible. There might have one day been a, a generation or a century in which no sermon would ever have to have as one of its points, there is truth. But we don't live in that century, and we don't live in that generation. We live in a generation where it is simply stunning and controversial to say, there is absolute truth, and you all, Americans, should bow before it. You try to claim that in the marketplace today, and you will be thought, if not verbally accused, of being misguided, and, and this is the shocker, immoral. Let me explain why those two are thought in our land today. You will be considered misguided because the vast assumption of America is that either there's no God absolute who could ground such an absolute truth, or there is a God, but he's the kind of God who somehow can embrace all contradictions and all ideas of all peoples everywhere in the world, or you just can't know anything about God at all. And therefore, any claim to absolute truth grounded in God is unthinkable and misguided, unwarranted. But the real shocker in our generation is that the claim to truth should be made, the real shocker is, that people think it's immoral. 
And the reason they think it's immoral is because it leads to intolerance and prejudice and bigotry. Morality today, this is an amazing thing. Morality today is defined virtually by relativism. Relativism is the new foundation of the new morality. If you don't believe that the truth you see should be binding on me, then you are humble and you are open-minded and you are good and moral. But if you believe that the truth you see should be binding on me, you are proud, arrogant, bigoted, prejudiced, and bad. Virtue, for most people today, demands relativism. That's the 20th century in which we live and into which we must say, for this purpose he was born and for this he came into the world to bear witness to the truth. It's the world in which this message has been nullified even before it is spoken on the radio or from a preacher's mouth. And the reason it's been nullified is because truth is seen as the rotten root of bigotry and intolerance and prejudice. And relativism is seen as the wholesome mother of mutual respect and tolerance and peace among people. In other words, the biblical message of Christmas this year in America runs into two obstacles. The first obstacle that we always talk about is that Christ has been taken out of Christmas. But the second obstacle is deeper, more pervasive, and more devastating. Namely, truth has been taken out of reality. It isn't the way people think anymore. That truth is out there, defined by God, to be quested after and sought with passion, and upon finding, rejoiced in, lived by, and derived meaning from. That is not the way Americans think anymore. Instead, people try to experience life to the full, and whatever that experience is to the full, they define as truth for them and make no demands upon you that you live with them in that fulfilling experience. Truth is truth for me, not truth for you. Truth for you, not for me. And the underlying principle that makes life livable is keep your monkey off my back. That's the guideline for life among relativists. Now, what's wrong with this? It's wrong, first, because it's self-contradictory, and second, because it's unbiblical and therefore makes rough sledding for all the truths of the Bible to win a hearing, let alone obedience, in our land. Let me try to explain. Um... First of all, before I explain that self-contradictory idea, let me read for you a quote that I just forgot about. I have here. I want you to hear this. 
because this uh, reality of relativism has, has pervaded not only the society, it's pervaded the church, too. Just keep your eyes open in different discussion groups, 2020 groups maybe, Sunday school classes maybe, and what you will find, if not a consistent carrying through, at least a natural surge up of resistance against any defining of absolutes. Don't tell me how to rear my child. Don't tell me how to spend my money. Don't tell me this or that. There are a thousand different ways that are right to do it. It's just pervasive. We cringe as Americans that anybody would presume to dictate how I should do something or what I should believe. And smaller and smaller becomes the common ground that we can call our absolutes. Alan Bloom wrote a bestseller called The Closing of the American Mind that is making all of this plain to many people. I want to quote from page 25. There is one thing a professor can absolutely be certain of. Almost every student entering the university believes or says he believes that truth is relative. If this belief is put to the test, one can count on the student's reaction. They will be uncomprehending. That anyone should regard relativism as not self-evident astonishes them, as though he were calling 2 plus 2 equals 4 into question. These are things you don't think about. The student backgrounds are as various as America can provide. Some are religious, some are atheists, some are left, some are right, some intend to be scientists, some humanists or professionals or businessmen, some are poor, some are rich. They are unified only in their relativism and in their allegiance to equality. And the two are related in a moral intention. The relativity of truth is not a theoretical insight. It is a moral assumption, the condition and ground of a free society, or so they see it. One young woman, as she left the service she said, I'm going to really pray for you the second service because this is so crucial. And then she told me that Mrs. Francis Schaefer had spoken over at Bethel last week. Or maybe, yeah, just last week, I guess, or I can't remember what she said just recently. And uh, her point in one of the talks was the reason to believe Christianity is that it's true. And this woman told me students came up to her and were just shocked that she would say such a thing. That that's the reason. Now, I said there are two problems with um, relativism. One, it's self-contradictory, and two, it's not biblical. Here's what I mean by saying it's self-contradictory. If you say there is no absolute that everybody should believe, you contradict yourself. Because in saying that, you want people to believe what you're saying. You see, at root, this philosophy won't work. It doesn't fit the nature of reality. If you say, I am absolutely against absolutes, everyone can see the problem. It won't work. You can't escape absolutes. 
Because in trying to declare their non-existence, you make a statement you want people to believe. And not consider relative. At root, it is self-contradictory. And unless you say, oh, that's the kind of stuff we talked about back in philosophy class in college. That doesn't belong in a sermon and that's not relevant to where I live. Look, it is tremendously relevant to where you live. Let me give you one illustration. Two weeks ago in Atlanta, there were 500 clergymen gathered together with Jerry Falwell to talk about whether or not it's right to sit down in front of abortion clinics and shut them down at the risk of arrest in order to keep babies from being killed in there that day. And in Atlanta, the pro-abortion forces mustered themselves together and used this leaflet to call people to action and counter-demonstration at the hotel. And I sent this by one of the pastors who was there. I want to read you part of it. It says, Stop Falwell and Operation Rescue. Keep abortion legal. Defend reproductive rights, etc. It gives a place where to meet on the back of the things. And at the bottom it says, in these big letters, We will not tolerate intolerance. And there's no smiley face written after it. This is dead serious. These women are enraged that someone would, as it says on the back here, put their morality onto others. Keep the monkey of your pro-life ideas off the back of the women of this country. Now, the problem with that relativistic approach, you can think what you want to think, we'll think what we want to think, and keep your monkey off our backs. The problem is, at the bottom line, is that it is self-contradictory. You can't live that way. I am absolutely against absolutes, is the counterpart to, we will not tolerate Intolerance. You have to wind up there if you believe anything at all. It is self-contradictory. Relativism has infected the whole American culture. And it's a house of cards. It won't stand. And therefore... It's unbiblical. What is the bottom line? Where do you think this comes from? The touting of relativism as a manageable way of life. I'll tell you where I think it comes from. I think the hidden agenda of relativism is that relativists want to relativize all views but their own. That is, relativists want to find a way of hindering any claim upon their lives from outside. And if you can create an atmosphere in which it is proud, arrogant, prejudiced, and bigoted to tell me I should do anything, you've protected yourself entirely from God and from any absolute morality. And of course, when the Bible comes along, it doesn't square with this view of life. All you need to do is look at the text 
For this I was born, and for this I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. And so the first implication for Christmas of our text is this. Christmas means there is truth. And everybody should now and one day will bow to that truth. From every culture, every language, every economic strata, every philosophical system, and every creed, it is true, and we must all submit. The second implication of this text for Christmas is that Jesus came into the world to testify to that truth. He is the key witness to the absolute truth of God's revelation. For this I was born, and for this I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And so the question I want to ask is this. What became of that witness? He's gone. He says he came, was born in order to witness to the truth, but now he's gone. And it's not enough to say, but he left his spirit behind. The spirit of truth, to guide us into all truth. That's not enough. And the reason it's not enough is because this text is not negligible. It says Jesus came and was born to bear witness to the truth. If all we needed was a spirit to whisper truths in our ears, he wouldn't have had to come to bear witness to the truth. He came to bear witness to the truth. He was born to bear witness to the truth. Therefore, we need the truth of the incarnate Jesus. We need that testimony. If it's lost, we're lost. And so my question stands, what became of that truth and that testimony to God's truth? The answer, I believe, is that it's in the Bible. In the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. As I was preparing this message, I had in the back of my mind people I've talked to recently who are not Christians, whom I hoped would be here, and I hope they are here and will be here, who asked me, well, look, I'm open, but how can I know that, that the testimony of Jesus has been faithfully preserved in the Bible? And besides that, how can I know that Jesus faithfully testified to God the Father? If there is a God the Father. That's a good question. It's a legitimate question. And so when I say, what became of this witness? I want to try to answer that question. And the way I want to try to answer it, because we only have a few minutes and you don't write a book of apologetics in five minutes. But I think you can point to an answer, a good answer. In five minutes. And here's the way I would point to that person. I'll just speak to all of you as though you're asking me that question. Buy a Bible. Get a good modern version. RSV, NIV, NASV. Go to Northwestern. Buy a Bible. It has two halves. First big fat half is called the Old Testament. Second little half is called the New Testament. And at the beginning of the New Testament are four books. They're called Gospels. And they're named Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, because those are the, the men who wrote them. And they're all about the life of Jesus. 
buy that book and get yourself alone in the new year and start to read those Gospels. Turn off the radio and the television. Get away from roommates and friends and family and get alone and begin to read. And as you read, look at the sorts of things he did. Listen to the sorts of things he said. And uh, focus on the kinds of attitudes that he had. And as you're reading, pray to the God who might exist and say, if you're there, God, I'm willing to believe you if you will show me enough evidences from these books that you're real. And then read. You see, I don't think that God set out the testimony to himself in his son in a book on the sea of humanity that wouldn't float. I think God intended for this book to make its way in the world and to suffice as a winsome and credible testimony to his son and through his son to himself. And so all I can say is this at this point. I believe both from experience, the experience of others, and from things that the Word says, that if you come to the Bible that way, willing to do what He says, it will open itself to you, testify to you, credit itself to you, evidence itself to you, and win your trust and your allegiance. And let me just illustrate that from several people's lives. Some of you may remember that 20 years ago or so, there was a very popular um, paraphrase called J.B. Phillips' translation of the New Testament. He was an English scholar who had tried to put the New Testament into modern prose. He was a very bright man, and he said, after he finished translating the letters of Paul, I felt rather like an electrician rewiring an ancient house without being able to turn off the main cable. And then when he finished translating the Gospels, he said, There is an almost childlike candor and simplicity, and the total effect is tremendous. No man could have set down such artless and vulnerable accounts as these unless some real event lay behind them. In other words, what I'm saying is that you credit the witness of the New Testament gospel writers the same way you credit a witness who claims to have seen something you need to know about and to which you have no other access. What would you do now if you needed to know the facts about something that happened a few weeks ago and the only person that saw it happen was the person standing in front of you and you knew nobody who knew this person? And you had to know. You know what you'd do? You'd spend a lot of time with that person. You'd talk and talk and talk and you'd listen and listen. And sooner or later you would form a judgment. And it wouldn't have to be a leap in the dark. You would form a judgment. This person is not trustworthy. He's a con man. And I won't trust him. Or you would say, there's the ring of truth about this person. I'll bank on him. And it's not a wild card here. That's the way you have to come to the gospel writers. You listen, you look, you absorb, and you come to a judgment. These are poor religious dupes or con men, or these men have won my trust. 
They're not dupes. This has the ring of truth about it. These men have won my trust. This Jesus can't be invented or duplicated. Nobody would think up a man like that. And Dr. Phillips tells us about interviewing a man named Dr. E.V. Rue, a scholar who had just finished translating the poet Homer, the ancient Greek poet, and he did not have any spiritual commitment to the Gospels, but he wanted to verify for himself what's the relationship intellectually and, and uh, linguistically between these four Gospels and the, the great poem that I just translated. And he interviewed this man on BBC Radio, and this is a quote from that interview. Ryu said, I got the deepest feeling that I possibly could have expected. It changed me. My work changed me. And I came to the conclusion that these words bear the seal of the Son of Man and God. And they're the Magna Carta of the human spirit. In other words, what I would commend to you this morning is that you do what these men did to the level that you can. That is, that very carefully you read and study and absorb what the gospel writers have said about Jesus. So the second implication of Christmas is this. Jesus Christ came into the world to bear witness to the truth. It's contained in the first four Gospels of the New Testament of this book. It is open for your assessment and they are witnesses ready to be tested by your own standards of judgment. Now, I want to close with an exhortation, namely, that you not be like Pilate when you hear these things. In verse 38, he sounds cynical, perhaps, or hopeless and agnostic at best. He was listening, and uh, he says, what is truth? Now, what is he saying there? Who does Pilate represent for us according to the gospel writer. I don't think he represents a sophisticated theoretical relativist that I was talking about earlier. I think if Pilate had been listening to me earlier, I think he would have said something like this. You know, Piper, you didn't phase me. You didn't touch me. You didn't come anywhere near where I am. Of course, if you say I'm absolutely against absolutes, you contradict yourself. Everybody knows that. I'm not a relativist like that. I don't believe in relativism, but I don't believe in absolutism either. I don't know. I just don't know. I mean, maybe truth is absolute. Maybe truth is relative. Maybe it's both in some inscrutable way. Maybe there's a God. Maybe there's not a God. Maybe you're a king. Maybe... I'm a king. I don't know. There's a lot of people who plead that kind of ignorance and who suspend judgment about Jesus Christ. They call it suspending judgment. It's just, I can't know. You preachers, you sound so confident. I don't know where you get such confidence. I read the Bible. I can't figure it out. I don't know what's true. What is truth? Now, granted... That person is not committing a theoretical self-contradiction like I was talking about earlier. But let's ask, what should we say to such people? What should I say to you if you are that kind of person? Here's what I would do. I would ask you a question. I would say, 
Do you, in the areas of your life where things really matter to you, do you suspend judgment and claim ignorance? Or do you form pretty firm, solid judgments about what you think is right and wrong and to be expected of others? When your life is at stake, when your property is at stake, when your children are at stake. And then I would say, I have never met nor have I ever heard of a person who was an agnostic about right and wrong when they got punched in the nose. Have you? Have you ever heard of anybody anywhere who when they were on the on the sidewalk, out of the blue, for no reason, punched in the nose, respond by saying, Ooh, but maybe he thinks that's right. Maybe in his worldview, it's okay to punch people in the nose, so I can't put my monkey on his back. That I think is wrong for him to punch me in the nose, I'll just have to take that. Ever, does anybody know anybody that runs their life that way? No, we don't. And the reason we don't is because even if we're not theoretically self-contradictory, we are practically self-contradictory if we claim that we cannot know right and wrong. Just as soon as your rights are infringed upon, just as soon as your life is threatened, you know what's right. And if you go into a judge and a courtroom and that judge says that the person that kidnapped your child and raped her can go free because that's what they think is okay to do, you will scream with absolutes. And about 10,000 other issues in the world, too. It is playing games to do what Pilate did here. And we love to play games about the things that impinge upon our life. If you can defuse the claim of the King Jesus by saying what is truth, you're off the hook for 50 years. But those who think soberly know that you're playing games with fire. So what should we do? Well, my exhortation is don't be like Pilate. Rather, humble yourself. Look at the Gospels. Get serious about whether or not it's true. And do what John 7, 18 says we should do. It says, he who is willing to do the will of God will know the doctrine, whether it is of God. That means that if you get serious enough about life and heaven and hell, and you say to God as you go to his word, look, I don't know if you're there, but if you're there, I bow. If you're there, I'll do anything you say. You will know. It's a promise from the Lord Jesus. And so I exhort you, get serious about whether Jesus is the truth. Look at the Gospels. Be willing to do whatever God reveals as true. And the truth will set you free. I want to close on a note of celebration about the sufficiency of the Word of God and then move into a Christmas carol. Here's the way we'll do it. Page 32 in the hymnal 
is how firm a foundation. Let's sing the first verse to the tune of O Come All Ye Faithful. And then at the end of that first verse, go right into the carol, O Come All Ye Faithful. Number 32, verse 1. Shall we stand and celebrate the word?